All right. <clears throat> All right, I was going to ask how many of you thought that video was going to end a little bit differently than the way it did. Anybody? Anybody worried about me showing that video right now? What is he doing with this? Um, well, that video is, for me, almost the perfect analogy of what I view temptation in my own life. See, I'll be driving down Highway K, and I'll see Chipotle on the, le on the left side or the right side, whatever, and I really want one of their big burritos. All right, I know that it's not going to be good for me. I know that it might cause some pain afterwards. I know that it could be hurtful, but I'm going to have my survivor moment after it's done. I'm going to be okay after. I'm going to have the dun, 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 dun. I'm going to be fine, right? But the funny thing is, temptation is a little deeper than just Chipotle burritos or turtle sundaes or whatever might tempt us. Temptation can go a whole lot deeper than that, can't it? Everybody goes to sleep in the house. And you can sneak downstairs, turn on the computer, and watch things that you know you shouldn't be watching. Someone sends you a snarky email, and you want to get the jab back. And you could send something that could really hurt somebody. What are you going to do? Maybe you work a place and it's just real easy to maybe skim a little bit off the top. Nobody will ever know. Maybe there's that person at work or across the street, whatever it might be. Opposite sex from you. They're really fun to talk to. Do you flirt? Maybe it's drugs and alcohol. Maybe you have a little bit of clout in your company and you're tempted to use and abuse the people around you just so that you can get ahead. Those temptations, they don't really end like the mouse in the video, do they? They end like the mouse in real life, which is how you thought the video was going to end. We get trapped, it's a whole lot harder to get out. This story that Thelma read is all about temptation, and we see that there are three temptations that happen in the story. And Andy Stanley says this of temptation. There's always more to temptation than we know in the moment. In the moment, it seems like all that's at stake is what we can see that's in front of us. The real issue with temptation is trust. And at the heart of every temptation is this question, can God be trusted? Last week, Brian talked about how we can get through some of the family problems that we had, and Joseph had all sorts of family problems. And today, I'm going to talk about how we can get through temptation. Three temptations in particular, but hopefully it will translate to anything that we're dealing with. First temptation we'll be dealing with is the, the temptation of power. The second will be the temptation of sex. And the third temptation could be the toughest temptation of all. So let's jump right in. We're going to talk about the temptation of power. This is one of those temptations in, the, in this story that, that's very evident, but sometimes it can be quickly just overlooked. Let's recap just, just a little bit from what's going on in the story. Joseph has just been sold into slavery and transport, transported to Egypt. And he lands in this man's, name, this man's house named Potiphar. Now, Potiphar was the captain of the guard. When I first read the story as a kid and all the way up probably for the next kind of 20 years before I did some research on it, captain of the guard always kind of seemed like he was the head of the secret service. But it's actually a whole lot more than just that. See, this exact same phrase is also used in 2 Kings 25 
and he's describing a Babylonian general who's also the captain of the guard. And this Babylonian general is the captain of the entire army of Babylon. So I think it's very easy for us to surmise that Potiphar was probably the entire, the, the captain of the entire Egyptian army, which was the strongest army at the time, and the most powerful country at the time. So to put this in historical perspective, it would be kind of like Joseph becoming an employee of this man right here. Well, actually not this man. There's another Dempsey out there, this guy. Not Patrick Dempsey, but this is Martin Dempsey. Does anybody know who Martin Dempsey is? He is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It would be like Joseph being this man's top aide. So Joseph has been put into, he's, he's been put into some power in the world. How is that power used? And in this story, we see that it's being used in two different ways by two different characters. First character we're going to talk about is Potiphar's wife. In verse 7 and verse 12, she says, Joseph, come to bed with me, come to bed with me. And if we read it that way, we'd be reading it completely wrong because in the Hebrew, it actually just uses two words here. Sex, now. Kind of forceful. But here is a woman that gets what she wants. She's the wife of a very prominent member of the Egyptian government. He's got a lot of power. She's got a lot of power. And the habits of her heart have been corrupted by the power that she's lived in. And of course, this is a betrayal of her husband. But as I said earlier, she's a woman that's used to getting what she wants. And I think this speaks to the heart of most Americans. We are a people, and in a time where it is easy for us to get everything we want, and in a moment's notice. And how many of the temptations that we have in life are our own doing? So we have Potiphar's wife, but in contrast to that, we have Joseph. And Joseph has also acquired a lot of power, and it says in verse 4 that he was Potiphar's attendant. Now, don't let this word attendant fool you, because this is the exact same word that they used to describe Joshua with his relationship with Moses, which means that Joseph was kind of his right-hand man. He was the guy that took care of everything. He's the guy that maybe even being groomed for something even a little greater within the army. Joseph was the COO of a major enterprise in the most powerful country of the world at that time. Joseph had power as well, but how did he use his power? He used his power to bless. Joseph used his power in a society that did not acknowledge his God, with a master that did not acknowledge his God, to bless them. So what do we learn here? If you were to go to the library, go to the bookstore, and you wanted to look for a book that said, or that talked about the person, the man or the woman that God uses, who would you suppose that, that book would be all about? Now for me, I think it's probably Billy Graham, C.S. Lewis, great theologian, you know, a Sunday school teacher that was, that was really faithful for years and years and years. But in this story, that's not who we find we find a person that is a business administrator that becomes a high government official. It's interesting, in Genesis uh, 12, God and Abraham. Abraham was Joseph's great-grandfather. They're having this conversation, and God says, I'm going to bless 
the world through your, your offspring. And it says in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Who is the first person, the first descendant that God uses to bless the world through Abraham? It's not a prophet. It's not a preacher. It's not a theologian. It's a, it's a businessman that eventually becomes a political leader that uses his administrative skills to organize a massive hunger relief effort to save not only his family, but thousands and thousands of people. And this is how God uses people. And I think he can use you. I think he can use me. Sometimes I think in the ministry, we've got the easy way out. But I believe that people that aren't in the ministry sometimes have opportunities that what we could never have. And sometimes it's a whole lot more effective, just like we see in this story. But why is his power and his use of the power effective? It's because Joseph used his power, and he was not used by power. He took up power, but was not taken by power. St. Augustine wrote a book called The City of God. And in this book, St. Augustine talks about how in every earthly city, there are actually two different cities. There's the city of God and the city of man. And the citizens, of, and, and they're in every earthly city, and the, citizen of, the citizens of the city of God, they're all about blessing people. They're all about lifting people up. They're all about helping each other along for the glory of God. But the citizens of the city of man, as you suspect, and probably you've worked with these type of people, they're all about self. They're all about getting self-promotion. They're all about getting up the ladder as quickly as they can. They're all about stepping on those that, that won't help them. And those people are tough to work with. Those people are hard to deal with. Those people are hard to live with. But how often does that kind of get into our own lives? I have a friend that uh, he, he leads a, a big team in the business world. And people love, love, love to work on his team. And it's because he does everything he can to make the people that are working on his team look successful, be successful, and he gives them all the glory. And when they screw up, he takes the blame. And you know why he does this? It's because Jesus Christ died for him. Jesus Christ did that for him. There's also a preacher, speaker, author out there named Francis Chan. Some of you may know who he is. He wrote this book called Crazy Love. But when he wrote the book Crazy Love, he decided that he was not going to take any of the proceeds of the book. And the book was, it was a big seller. People, when they found out what he was going to do, that he, that he was going to give all of the money away that he made on this book, they thought he was crazy. Even Christians went up to him and said, you know, Francis, you've got a large family. You've got to think about their college. You've got to think about your own retirement. And Francis said, you know what, I'm going to give all this money to any charity, but mainly to help girls in sex trafficking in Asia. And he said, if my daughter, if my daughter was caught in sex trafficking, I would spend every penny to get her out. Who's going to spend the money on those girls if it's not me? See, there's a man who's a citizen of the city of God. How do we use our power? What do we do with the influence that we've given? And it's so easy to be drawn into the world's thinking. 
Do we use our influence to bless other people? So there we go. There's the first temptation, the temptation of power. The second temptation is the temptation of sex. Now, the funny thing about the Bible is that you look through the Bible and it says much more about power and money than it does about sex. But this story, the main focus, sex. So here we go. This is what we're talking about. Hold on tight uh, because uh, maybe, I don't, it's, it's just going to be PG-13 maybe. No, we'll be fine. <coughs> when Potiphar's wife propositions Joseph, how did Joseph respond? In verse 9, he calls it wicked and sin. Joseph says, having sex with you, this is a terrible thing. I cannot do this because it's wicked, because it's sinful. It's not going to happen. And you might think, well, he said this because Potiphar's wife was married to Potiphar. But that's only part of the problem. The real problem was that Potiphar's wife was not married to Joseph. See, if you want to understand what the Bible says about sex, we have to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And Paul is making a parallel here to Joseph's story, and he lays out the gospel approach to sex. It says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said that two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. This is the parallel, just like Joseph did, just like he did in that that section that Thelma read. All other sin a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against his own body. So the big question is, what is adultery? And you might think adultery, and what Paul's talking about here, is having sex with someone that is married. But really, it's having sex with someone that's not your wife or not your husband. Because sex creates one flesh. Now, one flesh, this, I think this can be a little confusing. So what does this mean? Anthony Thistleton writes a commentary, and this is what he says the one flesh means. It says, when Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, which is where this is first found, that two shall become one flesh, He takes it to cover all sexual intercourse. Instead of devaluing sex, Paul is saying the opposite here. See, Paul was far ahead of first century cultural assumptions in perceiving that the sex act should be one of complete self-commitment that involves the whole person and not just the manipulation of body parts. See, the Bible says sex was created by God to say to someone else, I give my whole life to you, vulnerability, all of my oneness. I'm going to give you every aspect of my life, socially, economically, legally, emotionally, spiritually. Paul is saying that physical vulnerability and oneness is an expression of whole life vulnerability and oneness. If physical union is just an expression of what you've done with the rest of your entire life, then sex will deepen that trust. But if you have sex outside of marriage, you're saying, I want physical union, but I don't want whole life, un- whole life oneness with you. I want you, but I don't want to entrust my life to you. I want to make my own decisions. I want to keep my own possessions. And I want to do what I want and not consider what you want. See, when the Bible talks about sexual integrity, 
That's exactly what it's talking about. It's talking about integrating your entire life with the rest of your life. If you've given your whole life to someone, economically, spiritually, socially, then you can give your body. And you don't want to split those two things. See, sex is God's invention for complete life entrustment. Sex is God's invention for, for complete life entrustment. And if you use sex any other way, you'll weaken your ability for that entrustment. So this is why G Joseph fleed from it. Now, I want to say a couple things. First off, I'm not saying this because I want to make anybody feel guilty. That, that is the furthest thing from what I'm trying to do here. What I'm trying to do is to, to maybe get you to see things a different way because our world is bombarded by a completely different message, is it not? We live in a world, if you turn on the TV, I, I turn on, I've listened to some newscasts even, I've read a lot of blogs where this, this is under fire in a major, major, major way. And all I'm saying here is that maybe that God has a better plan for sex and that, that the Christian and biblical view of sex, okay, I'm going to say it, Christians should love sex, okay? But in the right context. And that it can be so much better than the, what the world is feeding us. Okay, so there's one. Number two, you might be thinking, Brian, that you're completely crazy. This is completely and totally ridiculous. This is regressive thinking. You know what? I, I can't buy into that. And why would you think that the Christian view is any better than any of the other views? You may hear people say this. I've heard this say to me. These are the people, a lot of times they'll have the coexist sticker on their car, and they don't want any religion placed any higher than any other religion. Make sense? Anybody else heard this? Well, I want you to consider one thing. Timothy Keller, he says this about this. Do you realize that there are very few things that all religions have in common, and this is one of them? You should not have sex outside of whole life commitment. Do you realize how hard it is to get a consensus of all the other religions, and those people are saying, how ridiculous to only have sex with one person. So, something to think about. How did Joseph then resist temptation? Now, this is the big surprise. Most people today would say the way we resist temptation, the way you don't eat that burrito, the way you don't, whatever it is, is that you look within yourself and you suppress it and you push it down. This is what modern psychologists would tell us. This is what the ancient Greeks told us. This is what Buddhism tells us. But this isn't what Joseph does. See, this is what happens here. Joseph does not look at his desire for Potiphar's wife Instead, he turns it around and he looks outside and he looks at his desire for God. He doesn't use willpower, but he uses heart power. This is how self-control works. If you go to Genesis 29, this is a story about Joseph's dad, Jacob. And Jacob falls in love with a lady named Rachel, who is actually Joseph's mom. Now, for jo Jacob to be able to marry Rachel, he has to work seven years of hard labor. And this is what it says of Jacob's toiling. Genesis 29, 20. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days for him. Only seemed like a few days. Wow, now that is self-control. Now why in the world would it only seem like a couple of days? 
we find out it says because of his love for because of his love for see jacob he had the normal desires in life he probably felt like he was taken advantage of he probably felt like he needed a break he probably felt like <clears throat> he needed to be you know maybe he needed more compensation whatever but none of that mattered because he had one love he had a rachel and that reordered every one of his desires and that's what joseph is ultimately doing See, your supreme love will put all the other desires in their place. Now, Joseph, he had a love for God, but we have something so much greater than that. We've got something so much greater because there was another Joseph in the Bible who was also beautiful, and this Joseph also lived in a grand palace in heaven. And it says in John 17 of this Joseph, that he had the eternal glory of God. In Philippians 2, it said that he was the equal of God. So this Joseph, just like the other Joseph, had a palace, he had the power, he had the glory, and also like this Joseph, he was kicked out. He lost it. In Isaiah 53, it says, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him low esteem. Surely he took up our pain. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. We know why Joseph went into prison. Even though he wasn't a criminal, he was thrown in with the criminals. Even though he wasn't guilty, he was thrown in with the guilty. And so was Jesus Christ. Isaiah goes on to say, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with transgressions, he bore the sin of many. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did Jesus endure all the temptations and all the struggle and everything he endured to get to the cross? Because of his overpowering love, which was us. We were Jesus' Rachel. And when you see what Jesus Christ has done for you, hopefully that will get you to do the exact same for him. When you see the degree of which Jesus loved us, then we can make Jesus Christ our Rachel. And we can make him our supreme passion. When we see that we are his passion, he will become our passion. When we see that, he, that we are his beauty, we can become, he can become our beauty. And this is what we need in the deepest depths of our souls. We need an ultimately beautiful person to look at us and say, I find you beautiful, and I give myself completely and wholly to you. And that's what Jesus Christ did for us. And if Jesus Christ is the deepest desire of our hearts, then all the other temptations should be put in their place. All of our other desires. Now this leads us to the last temptation, which is probably the hardest of them all. This is the one that can be the trickiest. See, in last week's story, Joseph did, he did some, he did some things that were a little questionable. Now his brothers, what they did was horrible. They should not have sold him. They shouldn't have plotted to kill him. But Joseph had, you know, he took a little bit of the blame with some of the stuff he said. He was kind of a spoiled brat. He probably could have, should have kept his dreams to himself. In this story, though, Joseph did everything right. 
He resisted the temptation. He made God his number one, and still what happened? It all fell apart. It all broke down. The next temptation is the temptation of despair. When you've done everything right, when you've resisted the temptation, when you've walked the path, when you've... And everything still falls apart. And you look up, and your life is still in shambles, and things are still just just completely destroyed, and you look to God and you say, God, why'd this happen? I'm doing everything that you told me to do. What do we do with that? Well, this is where we look to Joseph's story. Joseph didn't have the perspective that we do. We know that if Potiphar's wife had not done what she had done, if if Joseph had not resisted, if he wasn't thrown in jail, he never would have become the number two man in Egypt. He never would have met the king's prisoners. He never would have saved his family, and he would have never saved thousands of other people. See, God did not save him in spite of his tragedy. God saved Joseph through his tragedy. In the beginning, this is kind of the neat part, and I think this is why they book in the passage this way. The narrator says that God was with Joseph in everything he did. And how does it end? It says, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. And the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord, once again it says, was with Joseph and gave success to whatever he did. And what does this mean? It means that God has a plan for you. And I don't know what you're going through. Maybe you're going through one of those times where you are doing everything right. But everything is still falling apart. Understand that God's silence does not mean that God's absence. And can you still trust him? I'd like everybody to stand with me right now. And we're going to read the same passage that Brian has been re- had us read together for the last couple weeks. God is for us. God is with us. And if you'd read with me, I'll get through this. It won't be painless. It won't be quick. God will use the bad for good. I will not despair. With God's help, I'll get through this. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the story of Joseph, and I thank you that we have the perspective that you worked through his tragedy. And that you... Even though you may have not seemed like that you were present, you were working the most. And God, help us to understand that when things are falling apart and when things are hard, that you're still for us, you're still there, and you're still working for our good. And it's in your son's name we pray.